0: Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Last week we began a series for the new year going through the book of Acts. We're going to try and hit all of the verses as best as we can. Uh, We don't know how long it'll take yet. Uh, I've mapped it out through the end of June. I don't think it's the halfway point of the book, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But today we're looking at verses 6 through 11 in Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, that's Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are asking you to help us to know you, to teach us your word. We're so grateful for your word, Lord. Without it, we would be ignorant. And with it, you help us to understand you and ourselves and your will for our lives. God, we pray that that you would change us today wherever needed and that you would empower us to do your will. In Christ's name, amen. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably had a couple of different experiences, right? You go to one church, and it's nice. It's sweet, you know, good people, good message. It's a good church. And you go to another church, and it's just not so great, right? Maybe... Maybe it's, uh, maybe there are some toxic people there, or it's toxic leadership, right? It could be abusive or whatever. Most of us have, have had a few different experiences. Most of us have hopefully had an experience at a good church, right? In a church that's it's good. It's not perfect. No church is. Redeemer certainly not perfect. We probably fall, hopefully fall into the good category. Some churches are more healthy. Some churches are less healthy. But you've probably been to a good church. I hope you have. And, and if you have, you've, you've probably seen that each church tends to have a particular emphasis, a particular thing that it's all about, whatever that thing is. And, and some churches, they have the thing that they're known for, the thing that they are clearly about, because it's the thing that they talk the most about, it's the thing that their ministries tend to push and lead into, is an issue, the thing that they're about can be an issue that is good. Good. Sometimes it's bad, but most of the time we're talking about a good thing. It's a good issue. And churches that are driven by or centered around an issue other than the gospel are what I would call issue-driven churches. That doesn't mean that they're unorthodox or that they hate Jesus or anything like that. I'm not slamming them because there are all kinds of churches that are issue-driven churches. You can be liberal or you can be conservative, right, theologically speaking. Um, You can be Presbyterian or Baptist or non-denominational or Assemblies of God and be issue-driven, You could be Reformed or Calvinistic, you could be Arminian or Amaraldian, you could be all kinds of churches and still be an issue-driven church. Because an issue-driven church is a church that has put out front and is primarily focused on, not exclusively focused on, but primarily focused on something other than the gospel and the mission that that Jesus has given us. So, for example, um, some churches are clearly focused on politics and social change politics and social change are good things. These are valuable things. These are important things. But when the church is focusing on those things, and that becomes its thrust, its emphasis, the thing that it is about, it has lost its way in terms of mission. And it doesn't mean that they don't do good things. That doesn't mean that they are bad people. But it does mean that they cannot, in that condition, fulfill the mission that Christ gave them. Some churches, f- forget that example for a moment, uh, some churches are focused on Doctrinal precision. Now that's definitely more the crowd that we tend to roll with, right, as Redeemer. The, the doctrinally precise. And for them, their issue that they're most passionate about, that they're all about, is being accurate, precise in their theology. So these are the churches that tend to have long theological uh, heritages, like uh, they have creeds and confessions um, and they value these things. They have catechisms, they believe in catechesis, They want, and these are all good things, these aren't bad things. But churches that are f- primarily focused on being theologically accurate and precise, when that takes center stage, It means that the mission that Christ has given the church has been replaced. It doesn't mean that it's been completely removed from the church. It just means that its place of centrality uh, has been replaced. So issue-driven churches, it can be any issue, right? It can be... It could be being separate from the world, like some churches just want to be known. You see this typically in the more fundamentalist churches. They want to be known for how different they are from the world. They are very separate. It is very much based on how they live and not looking like the world, and they like to have lots of rules. Different churches have different issues that they tend to push to the front, and no church is is exempt from the temptation to do this. We all run into it. We do here, too. But what we need to be and what the book of Acts is going to help us to do is to maintain or recover, if needed, to maintain a gospel centrality and a mission-driven culture, right? Because it's not just something that has to be true of the preacher or the elders. uh, It has to be true of the whole church, the congregation, the whole thing. And what we see in this passage specifically, and we're gonna see this throughout the book of Acts, but we see it in this passage, is this principle. Jesus calls the church to avoid distraction and empowers the church to fulfill its mission. And we all need this. We all need this individually and collectively as members of a church, as people that are a part of a church family. Jesus calls us to avoid distraction, that's on us, And he empowers the church, he empowers us to fulfill the mission that Christ gave us. Now that, the empowerment, Is on him. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. We're going to see the need to avoid distraction, which is a common temptation. In verse 8, we're going to talk about the focus on mission that we need to maintain. And then in the verses 9 through 11, we're going to talk about maintaining our hope in the midst of this, okay? So first, avoiding distraction in verses 6 and 7. Right away, we can see that Jesus is still present. So this is before the ascension. So the book of Acts essentially backs up a little bit, right? So Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, he backs up a little bit from the end of Luke after Jesus has ascended and he says, okay, so here we are. Jesus is still with the disciples and they are together and uh, this is that, during that period of time when Jesus was making appearances, right? So he, he basically, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead and he began to, have manifest himself, he would be present with his disciples in dramatic ways. I mean, Christ was there in the flesh, eating with his disciples, fellowshipping with his disciples. He condescended so much that he allowed people to not only touch him, but to feel the wound in his side. So Jesus is making these appearances and as he does, he is exhorting, he is teaching and he is encouraging his disciples, encouraging the church before his departure, right? Before he ascends into heaven. So he's giving final instructions, he's giving encouragement and of course the the disciples, they have questions, right? They have questions of Jesus before his ascension, which is normal. We would all have questions, right? I mean, if you had any time with Jesus, you would have questions. You wouldn't be talking. If you're the kind of person you're messed up. If you're the kind of person that if you, had a, if you had five minutes with Jesus, you just want to talk. You want to talk. We would, we would want to ask Jesus questions. We would want to hear from him. And they do. They have questions, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. But their question sort of, um, it reveals their focus. And it shows them what they're thinking about. Look at verse 6. They come together. They ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, the question isn't bad. It's not a bad question. In fact, the, the, the interest itself isn't wrong. What they're fundamentally asking is, is this the end? Like, here you are, risen from the dead. Is this the time when you finally fully establish the kingdom? They knew that the kingdom was, was being uh, established. I mean, Jesus, it was the theme of his preaching throughout his earthly ministry, Right? Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. If I cast out demons by the the finger of God, then the the, the kingdom has come upon you. Uh, You know, you cannot see the kingdom unless you are born again. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom, but there is also this aspect in which they were waiting for it to finally arrive in full, right? We're, We're talking resurrection and paradise and all evil and sin is gone. That's what they're wondering about. Is this the time? Is this the grand finale that leads into eternity? Is this kingdom come right we 're supposed to pray is that kingdom come? Is, this, is this it that 's the question. There are some scholars out there who believe that their question itself is wrong because the theology is wrong. There are some scholars who look at this and they go oh they 're actually asking if Jesus is going to finally set up a political reign in the nation of Israel at that time, if he's he's going to take over. Because that was the common view that Jesus was confronted with. They're like, oh, people are thinking he's going to establish some sort of earthly temporal reign. But I don't think that's what it is. And there's a number of reasons why I don't think that is. Part of it is because they've been sitting under Jesus' teaching. They understand the kingdom. They've been converted, right? So I think they understand what the kingdom is now. But also, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their doctrine. He doesn't correct their thinking on this. Instead, Jesus addresses the timing issue. He's like, oh, in, in other words, it seems to me that Jesus is saying, not a bad question, but that's not for you to know. Right? You can see how he answers. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the se- or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, legit question, issue is good, you're not going to know. It's none of your business when it happens. That's going to happen, that's your business. And you got that right. But when you're not supposed to know, only the Father knows. In other words, what he's doing, he's essentially going back to this principle that we see in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that some things are supposed to remain secret. You're not supposed to know all things. So I'll just go back, Deuteronomy 29, 29, listen. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, God has made some things known. We read them in his word. We can know them. We can study them. We should make them known to others. But there are other things that are unknown. They are secret. Only the Lord knows. And those are matters of theology where we should keep our mouths closed. It's okay to ask questions, it's okay to wonder, it's, it's, this is all fine, but if the word is silent on these, some of these theological interests, then we should be equally silent and, and not pronounce some sort of knowledge base that we're certain of. So the secret things belong to the Lord, the things revealed belong to us, so that what? So that we may walk with the Lord, obey his word. So, Jesus says, listen, you're not supposed to know this is a secret thing. So he doesn't correct their theology, but he does correct their focus. He seems to move them away from the end, right, as their focus, and, and, and this idea of God making all things new, which is good theology, it's important, eschatology matters, and he, he leads them back, he guides their interests to something that's supposed to be central, primary. And it's the focus that every church is supposed to have. The mission. The mission. Jesus calls the church to avoid distraction, which is a common temptation. So many things competing for our attention these days and so many good things for us to be talking about and working through, good things. Things we're supposed to talk about and work through. But he calls us and empowers us to fulfill our mission, meaning that this is supposed to be central. So this means that every church... Every church here, including us, and every person, part of every church, we need to check ourselves. What are we known for? What is our emphasis, our thrust? What are we most passionate about? What are we working toward? Is it true that all these other things that matter are actually supporting the main thing? Because here's the truth. If the gospel is central and if the mission is what drives us, right, right? If that's the case, then doctrinal precision matters. Because you can't understand the doctrine of God, obviously, without the Bible. You you, you can't can't uh, fully understand the gospel or make it known without theology. You have to know Christ. You have to understand the deep things of God. Doctrinal precision matters. But not as an end in itself. As a means of glorifying God and making him known. As remaining centered on the gospel that reconciles us to God and going forward on mission. It's, it's like politics and social change matters because as disciples, we're supposed to love our neighbors. And so as disciples who make disciples, yes, that those things matter. It's just not the main thing. So we need to check ourselves. What is out front? What is our focus? What are we all about? And that's what Jesus does here, right? He, he moves us to focus on the mission in verse 8. Maybe the most popular verse in the book of Acts, and a good theme verse for the entire book. So as we're going through the book of Acts, eight is probably the verse that kind of gives you a feel for the whole book. eight says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. This is the key verse. Because not only does it let us know of, of this call for the church to be on mission or to be witnesses, but it also hits on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the theme of our series is called The Spirit and the Church. You see, there's, there's, there should be an understanding that we already have. That what God has called us to, this mission, we're going to talk about that, what it means to be witnesses in this mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples. We'll get to that. But that this mission requires a power and a strength that we do not inherently have in ourselves. You cannot fulfill the mission that Christ gave the church. We cannot fulfill the mission that Christ gave the church, even together, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. It requires divine power. Because, sure, anybody can... Use words to tell somebody else about Jesus. But we're not just talking about the work of evangelism. We're talking about this spiritual work of conversion. But who can convert a soul? You we can't, I can't. I could barely change somebody's mind. And when I do, it's usually temporary until they hear a better idea. But making disciples, it takes divine power to change a heart. Not to change behavior. You can change your behavior, you can change your conduct, it just takes some discipline just takes some effort, but to change your heart, your soul, your very character, that takes divine power. It takes divine power to deliver us from the domain of darkness and the reign of the devil, to deliver us out of that and into the kingdom of light where we experience freedom and liberation. That takes divine power to renew us, to sanctify us, to progressively change us spiritually, internally to become the people God has made us to be, this requires divine power. And this power comes from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right, so from the the work of the new birth in causing somebody to be born again to the ongoing work of sanctification, the very growth of the church in the biblical sense of that word, growth, that is all a work of the Spirit. Let me give you just a couple of passages to demonstrate this. Uh, Titus chapter three, verses four and five. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. So we all know this power. Every Christian knows this power at least in a few ways, and one of those ways is you were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. You were regenerated, it says. That is, you were born again. You were changed, spiritually changed. You went from not believing to believing. That can't happen without a change of heart, and that change of heart can't happen without the Holy Spirit. So whether you were 5 or 65 when it happened, whether you can remember it or not, you know it. You have been changed by the Holy Spirit and that can't be undone. It takes divine power to accomplish that. So you know it. We, we do know this. We can also see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here we're not only told that we have been born again by the Spirit, but that we are indwelt by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, that is God himself, dwells inside every believer. That doesn't make you God. It leaves God to be God and you to be the temple in which he dwells. He humbles himself to make his home in you and in me. This is astounding, because I don't know if you've checked in on yourself lately, but your home is a little... Out of order, right? We are, we are a, a hot mess, right? Even on our best days, even in our best shape, right? We are not really suitable hosts for the Lord, are we? But he condescends to dwell in us anyways. Beautiful gift. The Spirit dwells in us. And in in, in 1 Corinthians 6, the whole point is, listen, because the Spirit dwells in you, you were made to be a holy habitation, which means you should be careful how you live. And in context, what he's saying is, is Paul's making the point, listen, you got to be careful how you live, especially in the area of sexual morality or immorality. And he's making this point by saying, listen, um, yes, we need to obey the Lord because the Lord says, and what the Lord says is good. He, He commands us to do what is right. It's for his glory. It's for our good. But he's making a particular point. When you sin sexually, that is when you have sex outside of marriage, what you're doing is you are defiling the temple. It's not just that you're disobeying an arbitrary law. You are dishonoring God by defiling the temple in which he dwells. You're sinning with your body, not just with your mind, so it's a holistic sin. But know this, that the Lord dwells in you, his spirit is in you and with you, therefore be holy in your behavior. There are many other passages here, but you get the point. The Holy Spirit and his power is at work in believers. He causes us to be born again, he dwells in us, and he empowers us to do the things God calls us to do. Listen, we're gonna see this in the book of Acts as we go through it. The Holy Spirit leads and empowers us to do what God calls us to do. And if that sort of thinking makes you uncomfortable, if that idea that the Holy Spirit leads you and empowers you to do what God calls you to do as a part of his church, if you're uncomfortable with that, you're going to be uncomfortable with the life of faith. Because sometimes we get comfortable with life as we know it, with faith as we know it, and many of us have sort of blocked out This idea of the Spirit leading or filling and and being active in our lives. But you can't read the book of Acts. I don't think you can read much of the Bible, especially the New Testament, and walk away thinking that the Holy Spirit should be inactive or absent from our lives. You need power to do what God calls you to do. Here's the thing. Consider Jesus. We spent three years in in the Gospel of Luke, so if you were with us for that, you can think back. Jesus... Did what he did. He fulfilled all righteousness. He submitted himself to the will of God. He loved the neighbor, right? He loved his neighbor. He, he did all that he did to save us, but all that he did in the flesh, like in his human nature, he did fully in his human nature, meaning that he didn't just let, rely on the fact that he is a divine being to resist the temptation to sin. He resisted it as he submitted himself to the lord as he was led by the holy spirit. So just for example, Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 24, so right? In Luke chapter 4, this is when Jesus he's baptized, he's ready for ministry and the first thing that happens is the holy spirit leads him into the middle of nowhere. Right? Luke chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus full of the holy spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. That is a bummer. He's, he's, he's baptized, the Father has spoken, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, and he's, he's ready to go, and the first thing the Spirit leads him to do is he leads him to go out into the middle of nowhere to fast for 40 days, no thanks, and in the midst of fasting for 40 days, he's tempted, attacked by the devil, led by the Spirit to do this, sustained by the Spirit. In fact, verse 14 of chapter 4, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And he went about preaching and teaching. His ministry fully began. Or you can go to Luke chapter 24, right at the very end, verse 48. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples before the ascension. So same context of Acts chapter 1. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The same spirit and the same power that led Jesus and empowered Jesus leads us and empowers us to do the things that Christ calls us to do, in particular, this mission. This is incredible. Think about it, the power of God. It's the same power that created the universe, the heavens and the earth. That power is the power of the spirit in you to do what God calls you to do. And and the power of the Almighty overshadowed Mary. Jesus was conceived by divine power. That's the same power that dwells in believers in the church for accomplishing the purpose of God. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power at work in us to do the thing that Christ has called us to do. And what has he called us to do? Many things, yes, but the primary thing is to be witnesses, right? We're called to focus on mission, and our mission here in Acts 1.8, it's put into this phrase, uh, to be witnesses, right? To be witnesses in the world, to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Now, you guys know what a witness is, right? You've watched enough Law and Order, or you've been to court or in court, or you've been on trial. I don't know what your story is, but you know what a witness is. A witness is a person who knows something and is saying something. They know something, and they're testifying. That's a witness. And that is the sense in which this word is used here. There's a formal sense in in which there were witnesses who saw Christ's bodily resurrection. They saw him post-resurrection. They're witnesses, and now they are telling others. It's a formal witness, and then there are informal witnesses, which is the rest of us, who have not seen the resurrected Lord, but as Jesus said, blessed are those who did not see and still believe. Because we are still telling what we know to be true about this Christ who has been raised. And while we did not see him, we know him because we can see his work in our lives. And the very spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that these things are true. We are called to be witnesses. That is, we are called to testify, to tell the truth about Jesus to the world. This is our calling. This is our mission. You guys know the central passage when we're talking about the mission of the church. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We just covered this in a small one-day conference we did here at the church. And in, in, in Matthew, Jesus says it this way. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? So there's a lot there. Uh, Make disciples. Right? So in other words, bear witness, tell the truth, and call people to faith in the midst of their conversion, right? They are becoming disciples. So we are evangelizing. We're called to tell the truth, call people to faith and repentance. They believe they are converted. And we're supposed to do what with these disciples? We're supposed to continue to disciple them, train them up in the ways that they are supposed to go, teach them all the things that Jesus has said. We're supposed to teach one another what it means to glorify God by a life of faith and obedience. This is our calling. This is what it means to be a witness. And we are all called to participate in witnessing. We used to call it that. At least I used to call it that, witnessing. I you know about witnesses of people today, right? And, and so you would witness, right? Which just meant you would tell people about Jesus. Here's the thing. We all participate in making disciples in different ways. We all play different roles in the local church in doing that. Many different ways in which we contribute. But we are all called to be witnesses wherever God allows us, calls us, plants us, moves us. You are called to bear witness, which means to tell the truth about Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you're all supposed to be super evangelists, right? Because we're all gifted in different ways, and we all have different opportunities, but it also means that there is no reason for anybody to say, I don't have the gift of evangelism, therefore it's not my responsibility. It is not just your responsibility to bear witness about Jesus. It is your privilege. It is your honor. It's supposed to be your joy to share good news with others. some of you are just wired for it, right? Some of you are just ready. You will talk about Jesus to anyone, even if they're not listening, you're still gonna talk to them about it. If there there isn't an opportunity, you will create an opportunity, and that's great. We love that. There are others who, uh, you know what? You need a bit more of a rapport. You need more of a natural opportunity. Uh, And some people are wired differently. So some people are just more extroverted and aggressive in that sort of a situation. Other people are a bit more, more, uh, you know, quiet, you know, they're not an extrovert, they're an introvert, and so they're, you know, it's harder for them. And so their opportunities are usually found in the context of relationships that are established. But all of us are called to bear witness to the reality, the truth of Jesus. This is our privilege It's called good news. That's what gospel means. It's called good news for a reason, right? It is good news. We should be amped, excited to share this good news because this is the good news that we ourselves have experienced. God forgives sinners. He reconciles us to himself. He gives us eternal life. It's good news that matters. I mean, think about it. Have you you paid attention to the world that we live in? It's a mess. The world is broken. It's busted. It's grim. It's dark. It's dark. And listen, I know that there is beauty. I know that there is much to rejoice in. You can see something go, wow, look at that. Somebody did a great thing. But why do those things shine so brightly to us? Why is it when you see somebody demonstrating mercy or compassion or justice or standing up for what is right, why do we rejoice so loud? Because it is so rare overall. Because it happens against the backdrop of a dark and devilish reality. The world is broken. We need redemption. And while many people today aren't so much asking, like, boy, I want to go to heaven. How can I make that happen? That was a question previous generations had asked. They're not asking that. But they are asking questions like, wow, I don't know what to do with this guilt that I feel inside of me. I feel like there is something dirty in there and I don't know how to get rid of it and they're looking for answers. They're trying to find out what do I do with my guilt. They're looking to understand why do I exist? What is my purpose? Do I have a purpose? Do I just make it up? What happens if I make it up and I can't meet that purpose? Do I then have no purpose? Like what am I supposed to be doing? Where do I get direction from? Where is meaning? Where is value? And the gospel answers all of that and more. We're all called to be witnesses. And witnesses to the end of the earth, right? You see that, right? In Jerusalem, Judea, and to the end of the earth. Now, um... Let me just explain what that means and what it doesn't mean. What it means is Jesus is saying, "Listen, uh, the birth of, of the New Testament Church, the, the this uh, the, the, the birth of this mission is coming out right here in Jerusalem. That's where it's going to start, and it's going to spread out from Jerusalem as the church is faithful to witness. It's going to spread out from Jerusalem into the area of Judea, and then it will spread further into Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Right? So it's going to spread out, think concentric circles. Essentially, that's what it means." Now what this doesn't mean is everybody has their own Jerusalem, everybody has their own Judea, everybody has their own Samaria, and you're supposed to work it out like that. That's not the point of the passage. If you want to think that way, that's fine, but you're just making it up. It's not in the Bible. The point here is that this is how the gospel has spread. And where is the gospel now? It is in the ends of the earth. It is here. This is part of the end of the earth. Because this was not a part of the known world in the first century. In Jerusalem. So here we are. The gospel has made it here. It has impacted you. You have experienced the power of the Spirit. You've believed the gospel. And now you are supposed to take up the cause and move on. Keep going. Keep making disciples. Keep bearing witness. Yes, it's supposed to go to every corner of the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every culture, every people, every neighborhood, every home should hear the gospel. And that responsibility and privilege is on us, not professionals. It's on us. Some people are professionals in that they are supported financially to do it, but it's on us to do this. We have been given this privilege. Now... Part of what we're doing in the book of Acts is to encourage us ourselves. We want to be encouraged. We want to be refined. We want to repent or or, or make changes wherever we need to as a church, as we look to see what it means to be a New Testament biblical church in the world making disciples. That's what we want to do. And one of the things that we need to do is we need to maintain hope. We need to cultivate zeal because, frankly, uh, we get bored. We get bored or we get tired we get tired or bored, right? So it, and it's, listen, it shouldn't be that way, but that's just the way it is because we are fallen, frail people. We have short attention spans, certainly short in comparison to God, right? Uh, we, we just, we, we need to cultivate zeal continually because things wane after a while. But listen to what I'm talking about here in terms of hope in verses nine through 11. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This really does help us begin to see where elements of our hope and zeal should come from. Jesus ascends. It's a pretty phenomenal, it's a pretty phenomenal thing, right? Very few people, a few hundred people got to see this, right? Jesus is there, physical Jesus, right? The risen Lord, he's standing there, he's talking, he's giving them encouragement, exhortation, and then he begins to, like David Blaine, right? <laughs> he starts to lift up off the ground, which is crazy. We only see that in make-believe. We only see that in the movies or by a magician, right? Right? Jesus starts to raise up, but it ain't no joke. It's not a goof. He's rising up, and he's rising up into the clouds. I mean, he disappears into the sky, and the disciples are standing around looking up there like, what What the heck? They're standing there, and while they're standing there, mouths agape, eyes wide open, two angels appear before them. They don't even seem to notice that the angels are there. I don't don't see any indication of that. They didn't get freaked out. They're They're so dialed in on Jesus disappearing into the sky, these angels speak up, and they go, hey! Why are you staring Why are you staring to where Jesus just went Which to me I think the whole thing is funny And I think it's supposed to be funny I could be wrong But uh, they're staring And they're like "Why Why are you staring Why are you doing that He's coming back He'll come back But The point doesn't seem to be Hey You don't need to look up there Because eventually he's going to come back That doesn't seem to be the point The point to me seems to be Stop staring up there. You've got work to do. Stop, stop looking. Don't just stand there waiting. Let's go. Let's make disciples. Let's bear with What did Jesus just tell you was going to happen? You're, you're, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be witnesses, so let's get going. And the hope, the hope here, comes from this idea. He's like, no, no, no. Just as he went, physically, bodily, visibly, He's going to return, visibly, bodily. He's going to return. And that is hope. How? Well, there's, there's, there's two, two reasons here I think this, is, this, this gives us and these disciples hope. One is because when Jesus returns, it is the final, ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises that we have in Jesus. And what are we doing when we bear witness? We're holding out the promises of God. Believe in Christ and you'll be forgiven. Believe in Christ and you'll be set free from sin. Believe in Christ and you'll be given power from the Holy Spirit to walk in God's ways. You'll find your purpose in in glorifying God and enjoying him forever, right? You will be made new. You are going to be changed. You're going to be a useful vessel for the Lord in other people's lives, and on and on it goes. And ultimately what? Justice will reign. Peace will be established. Evil will be conquered. Corruption will be removed but for all of it to be experienced in full, we've got to wait for the return. We've got to wait for kingdom come, which is the thing that we're asking about in the very beginning. Is this the time? No. Don't worry about it. It's coming. And it's coming should be a motive for you to get out there and to tell other people about Jesus. Because the fact that the kingdom is coming means that the clock is on. It's running, and time is running out. The kingdom will come, and at that point when it comes, there is no more opportunity, so start now. Also, the clock is running on your life. You don't know when your last day is. You don't know when your last opportunity is to tell somebody. You don't want to waste your days, the few days that you may have left, and not only you, the people that God puts in your life, you don't know when their last day is, when the last opportunity they will have to hear the gospel. You know the first time I heard the gospel? 17. Nobody told me about Jesus, not once, not even my religious grandmother, 17. And it took some blonde girl in the dean's office to finally tell me about Jesus. And I basically had to force her to go on a date with me. And then she's like, all right, I'll go on a date with you. John 3.16. And she told me about Jesus. I could have died by the time I was 17. I could have easily died five times because of the things I was doing. Easily. You don't know You have opportunities given to you by God to testify. I don't want to guilt you into it. I'm not trying to to beat you up. I just want you to realize, I need to realize that I'm, I'm too comfortable wasting opportunities, which could be the last opportunity somebody has to believe. Whether you have the opportunity to invite them to church or whether you have the opportunity to tell them part of your story or whether you simply have the opportunity to tell them that Jesus is the answer for their sin problem, or maybe you have the opportunity to sit down with him and go deep. We should be motivated to do this for the glory of God, for the good of mankind, and because our time is limited. See, their focus wasn't a bad thing. Is the end coming? Is it now? It's a good thing. This is not supposed to be the main thing. The main thing is the mission. Gospel centrality Mission driven. That's what God calls us to be. It's only possible. It's only possible for us to even do this and to be successful at it in God's measure by His Holy Spirit. So I want us to eagerly anticipate growth, health, joy, all by God's standards but only as we are all willing to tell others. And maybe you're here and uh, all of this is just like, man, why is that short, bald, angry guy yelling at everybody about telling people about Jesus? Um, We're talking to each other as a family, right? I'm talking to my family, my brothers and my sisters, and I just want us to be encouraged. But if you don't know Jesus, the only thing The ultimate thing that you need to grasp today is that your only hope in life and in death is found in Christ. You need forgiveness, not just from people, and you know that. You need forgiveness from God. But you also need to be redeemed, right? From slavery to sin and from the the rule of darkness, you hopefully... Are beginning to see your need to become what you are meant to be, which is so much more than your own worldly desires. You are meant to be a child of God walking in his ways, delighting in his ways. All of this and more is found in Christ. So we would just encourage you, look to Jesus who said all who come to him will be set free, will have eternal life. We have found this to be true. We hope you will as well. And for us as a church, let's not just study the book of Acts, let's live out together. And I've seen it so much already in so many of you and so many of us, I've seen it. But let's continue, let's, let's press into it together and encourage one another to live out the acts of the church as we're empowered to by God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would... Uh, Yes, yes, convict us, Lord, wherever we need it, but encourage us and excite us where we want zeal and passion to be accompanied by knowledge. Where we want to be a people who love our neighbors, and so we care about what's happening in the culture, and we're we have things to say and things to do. We we want to be doctrinally precise. You we, we know, theology matters, but we want those things to be true of us because you have saved us by a gospel and commissioned us to share that gospel. We pray that you would give us success for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.